Welcome to Chase the Vase podcast, where we share stories about those who have fought to overcome addiction. Join us every Tuesday and Thursday for the latest stories, tools, and tricks to sobriety. Now, here's your host, Brock Bevel. Welcome to Chase the Vase podcast. I'm here with Sergeant Chris Scallon. Well, I guess now retired. Okay. After 24 years as a veteran with the Norfolk Police Department. Hey, come on now. Look at you. You're holding a master's degree in psychology, BS in criminal justice, certified clinical incident stress management. Man, the best thing is sober. That's pretty cool, man. You're also a founder of survival mindset training and consulting. Tell me a little bit about that, man. After my uh, my last shooting, I was involved in multiple shootings. Wheels kind of fell off me. I went sideways quickly. I think I was up to like a half gallon of, of liquor a day. The other thing that really bothered me is that a lot of the doctors were just giving me pills to take because they were like, oh, this? Okay, take that. This hurts? Take that. So I started, I went through, I had to fail a lot is the way I like to look at it or, or kind of get over some obstacles until I got to where I needed to get to. And as a before I was a supervisor, and, and even as a supervisor, I got my PhD in complaining. I could complain about everything. You give me a situation, I'll tell you what's wrong with it. That was my jam. But when I became a supervisor, I started realizing that if you're just doing that, all you're doing is complaining. There was a need where I just real kind of, maybe it was a naive kind of feeling that I wanted to leave the department better than it was when I first got there. And, and if you'd have told me I'd have been doing mental health stuff and recovery stuff that I would have been like, you're crazy. There's no way this guy's doing it. That I'm was all our goal from day one, right? We just want to yeah. make it a better place. So I decided to start the peer support program and I actually wrote an article for Police Chief Magazine a few years back, oh, a lot of years back now. And it was basically, I, I saw a need, so I created it. And I started talking about, you know, how to survive, you know, prolonged deadly force encounters and like mentally. The tactics part, I can do that, but... For me, tactics are tactics. You either have them or you don't. So if you have the tactics, what often we don't start weighing in on is this, your head, what's going on between those ears and how that affects you. I know phenomenal operators that technically are profound. After, in the aftermath of significant calls for service or incidents or major things, it's crazy. They can't, they don't reach out for help. They struggle, they go down the drain. And most of the guys that I really were dealing with at the time were our operators, were our SWAT guys, you know, I mean, uh, the violent crimes guys, you know, the folks working sex crime. I created a class called Survival Mindset, you know, kind of learning and, and teaching how to survive through the inevitability of seeing horrible stuff. So somebody else from another agency picked up, uh, as I was in Norfolk, so Chesapeake asked me, and then Virginia Beach, and then it was locally, and I was kind of going out there, kind of doing my thing. And then somebody asked, hey, why don't you do it over here and outside of state? And it just started snowballing. And I was like, I said, all right, so there's a need for this. I got a call from Northeastern University and International Association of Chiefs of Police, and there was a fellowship opportunity to work on what's called the Vicarious Trauma Toolkit. And what that was is, it's like an encyclopedia for all things uh, trauma-based for multiple disciplines, fire, EMS, law enforcement, and we also included victim advocacy. I wanted working with the Boston Area Rape Crisis Center, wanted working with the federal ICAC stuff, the Internet Crimes Against Children, and and all these kind of things. And we would go out and vet all the resources. So as law enforcement, I was a law enforcement fellow and I did, and I vetted all the law enforcement stuff to include dispatch, chaplaincy programs, all these different things. And so I started getting really well-versed. And if you know me, when I come across an obstacle, it shuts me down 
And then I get this fire me that like, okay, why did it shut me down? And how do I get through this? How do I make this teachable? Those are my things. And when I say teachable, I don't mean to anybody else. Me. I needed to teach myself. So yeah, yeah. I started going through all this stuff and all the motions and learning all these great things, seeing what's out there, you know, pulling from what's great in another program and using it. And it was interesting when I first started creating the Peer Sport Program, Critical Incident Stress Management Unit, I said, all right, by nature, I'm lazy. So I don't want to reinvent the wheel. So I was like, in my head, I'm like, who are the two oldest peer sport programs in the country? That's Boston Peer Support. And that is San Francisco's Behavioral Sciences Unit. So being who I am, I was actually in Boston at the time. And I was at the, we were having one of our, it's like a fancy word for meeting, a symposium or some something like that. But it's just a meeting. That's all it was. So I come across this guy, huge guy, and his name was Ed. And I'm like, God, this guy looks really familiar. He was the commissioner for Boston PD during the Boston Marathon bombing. And I'm like, hey, uh, I, can you hook me up with your, your peer support guys? He made, stopped what he was doing, made a phone call, and hooked me up with now one of my one of my best friends ever. His name is Mark Fury, and I believe just retired from Boston. But he was a sergeant in charge of Boston PD, peer support program. So I call him up, and uh, I'm from New York, even though I work down in Virginia. But so I call him, I said, uh, I said, hey, is this Mark Fury? He goes, yeah, this is Mac. I'm like, oh, okay, here we go. <laughs> it's this <I'm> guy. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so I tell him, I was like, hey, my guy, I, you know, this is what I'm trying to do. In my head, I'm like, how do I convince this guy to, to sit on the slide, give me all his stuff? So I'm trying to, you know, get this and work this. He goes, do you want me to send you all my stuff? And I'm like, uh, yeah. He goes, all right, give me your address. I'll send it to you right now. And I'm like, what? I was like, what is going on? And I was like, hey, man, can I come visit you? When do you want to come? And so I, he sent me the stuff. I went up there. He showed me everything. And I'm like, I'm like, this is weird. So I call up the sergeant over in charge of San Francisco Behavioral Science Unit. And I was still a little bit skittish. And I'm like, hey, this is Chris. I'm from Norfolk, Virginia. I'm trying to get the... Come on out. I'm like, okay. Went out there. They, I mean, she was great. She hooked me up with, we took a boat on their Harbor Patrol underneath uh, Golden Gate Bridge and uh, the rock, you know, Alcatraz and, but sat us down, you know, cause I hadn't been out to the West coast that much. So I kind of did like, we did a day of like the touristy kind of thing. Don't tell my bosses. So, but the next couple of days took me around to what they were doing. And so what they were doing similar to Boston, but they had a couple different, uh, you know, kind of little different idiosyncrasies that they had going on over there. Two of the things that really stuck out with me that they had over in San Francisco were the Veterans Reintegration Program and Catastrophic Illness Program. And they obviously, Boston and San Francisco had their own substance issue uh, or substance abuse programs where Boston actually paid for two of their officers to become clinicians specializing in substance abuse. Boom, mind blown. Boom, yeah, yeah. I'm all over the place. And so at the time, I was also dealing with and I, I kind of explain it to this to anybody who's trying to start programs or work with mental health, first responders, veterans, you're building a plane while you're flying it. So you're still helping people, but at the same time, you don't have all the resources. So I'm calling friends, I'm doing this thing. So I wrote this article for Police Chief Magazine and I'm like, and then I did this and I was pumped. And when I get flown on something, I'm usually, I go way past my abilities. I started getting inundated. And then I had an officer that was, uh, that I got called in because he was threatening to kill his wife and then himself. It was in the middle of a psychotic break, struggling with a lot of physical and emotional issues, spiritual issues. At the same time, a friend of my family, their father passed away, dealing with that. And I was, there was like five different things in, in one week. And I was home and I, I get like maybe four seconds of like just nothing and then something else would hit me. And then it was, I remember it was a Sunday and a, a sergeant that I knew uh, in charge of a 
a specialty unit called me up and goes, Chris, I got a guy, he's crying on the phone, one of my guys, and I think he's suicidal. Can you help me? And I remember I was falling back into my old, my old ways. And it was funny, my mom, oh, my mom, my, uh, my wife, oh, that's going to go over well. And at the end of the week, she's like, what's going on? I was like, what are you talking about? She goes, do you realize you've come home every single day? And, and again, my hours were weird coming in at night and, you know, in the morning or in the afternoon. She goes, and you would sit on the couch and have a drink. And I said, uh, I had no idea. Kind of fall back into your routines. And for me, you know, those coping mechanisms kind of fall. And for me, take the drink away, the prescription abuse that I was doing. I wasn't even given prescriptions as much. I was given a prescription for certain medications, but my doctors were giving me sample packets because to avoid like money and this and that. So, I mean, if you looked in the back of my trunk, I had sample packets, some pretty hardcore stuff. And it was like a wake up call. And I'm like, oh shit. And I said, and I wrote this in the article. I said, folks like us, our desire to help people is often outweighed by our inability. And, and what I meant to say by that was I found myself being so successful and helping these few people that it was at the cost of my own health. Your own life. And, yeah, man. And it's one of those things where I would take those medications with booze. I figured this out. And by the way, I'm, I'm not a big fan of Ambien. I, I woke up with, you know, night terrors. I woke up with my gun in my hand one time. And so everybody knows this is the logic of, of a brain that uses a lot of different things. And uh, Ambien wasn't really working to get me to sleep, but it helped me stay asleep for however long until I couldn't stand whatever nightmare or I'd wake up or walk around, whatever. But I realized if I drank a pint of, of liquor and took an Ambien, I'd be out like that. Now in the brain, that's the answer. It's funny because I tell people, especially you know when we're running the program, that there's a difference between passing out and falling asleep and coming to and waking up. They're two very distinct differences with all the things that, that kind of happen like that. So in the article, I said, you know, great, great, great. And you're getting a lot of, you know, like, yeah, you're doing great work. You're doing great work. And it's just feeding that machine and feeding it and feeding it. And it got to the point where this one guy calls me up and asked me to help with this officer. And for the first time, it was the hardest thing I ever had to do. I told him, I cannot help you. And it was one of those things where I couldn't go out there. Now, that's what I meant by not helping. Did I hook him up with somebody who could go out there? Absolutely. So I didn't get any sleep that night. I'm thinking this guy's going to kill himself. And it's because I was my there. fault. My fault. And actually, it's no different than a lot of us when we come back from combat you know, and we lose somebody, you know, maybe I should have ridden uh, in the turret or maybe I should have been sitting on the passenger side of the Humvee. You know, if I did this, my buddy would be all right and I wouldn't be wearing his blood all over me. You know what I mean? So here's what I'm, I want to kind of express totally. We grow up and we and we do these jobs understanding that if you rely on hoping that somebody's not going to be violent, you're going to get hurt. So we automatically approach every situation as if we need to react in the event something comes up. So when we do that, that changes our personality, where we sit in a restaurant, how we approach open spaces. There wasn't a place that I couldn't go in, especially after being involved in so many shootings. I was like, I'm a magnet for this kind of stuff, which is a ridiculous kind of statement, but I felt like that's what's going to happen. Always ready, hypervigilant. When you get exhausted from physical labor, it's one thing. When you get mentally exhausted, I can't explain the depths of how it's like holding 3,000 pound anchors and it just kind of stifles you. So with doing all this stuff, and there was a big learning curve for me, but being who I am, I shifted away from criminal justice and I went full bore into, I wanted to become a clinician. And because I, I found there weren't enough clinicians that truly understood our job from doing it. And 
there was this one time I was sent to talk to some people and this one supervisor from an, a surrounding agency that after my shooting, he made me wait for like an hour in the, in the, I'm a, here I am a detective and I'm waiting in the, the waiting room of a police department. And he comes out and he's wiping his mouth because he just finished eating. And he's like, oh, we're ready for you. Now I was already pissed off because I had purposely stopped drinking. So I wouldn't show up to the police station drunk. That's the kind of thing. That, so I'm pissed off that I can't have my drink yet. So I got to listen to this guy, whatever. So I go sit in this room, big room, three people in it, me, this guy, and this female. And he comes to me, he goes, I know what you're going through. And for the first time, because I thought it was by myself, kind of struggling with what I was struggling with. And so I got wide-eyed. I'm like, oh, you know, you, you've been involved in a shooting? And he goes, oh, no, no, no. But I know somebody who has. What? That's um, a commercial, right? I was in awe of what I just heard. And I looked at the lady, I said, and who are you? She goes, I'm Dr. So-and-so. I said, have you been involved in a shooting? She's like, no. And so I cursed at them and I walked out the door. And then my captain at the time called me up because apparently they called him. They were like, hey, man, your guy's insane. And he goes, like, I hear it didn't work out. And, and this is, and this next part is important because it relates to who can help us. So my captain says, I know that last time didn't work out for you. I have another guy. Can you go meet him? And I, at this point, I'm like, you know, whatever. I'm at, I'm not working. You have to go do this because you got to get cleared for duty so you can go yeah. back. Because if you don't, you can't come back. They have to medically, so-called medically clear you that you're not crazy and that you're that you're not being affected by this. Which is interesting because how they do things, and it's funny the way it happens. You know, the intent is to like medically, again, fit for duty kind of thing. But I was kind of rushed into it a little bit more than I should have. So I said, okay, I'll meet with this guy. And I remember his name is Mike. He was a first lieutenant from, and I mentioned him and his police department because I attribute my contact with Mike with saving my life. So I go to, I meet him at this Chick-fil-A. And by the way, a month and a half after my shooting, I lost 50 pounds. I wasn't eating at all. All I was doing was drinking and taking whatever pills. And it kind of, you know, it kind of takes away your appetite. And I just wasn't hungry. I really wasn't. I was extremely depressed and suicidal and all that good stuff. And Let me ask you a couple of questions. You, you've mentioned it. How many shootings had you been in? Seven. Seven shootings. This was your eighth? The last one was my seventh. Your seventh. So during this time, man, like nobody reached out. Nobody paid attention to Chris. Nobody saw this happen. I mean, come on, seven shootings. You're changing that dynamic. I mean, everything about you was different. You know, I look back at it now and I, it reminds me of like in the old days in the Civil War, the medication was get him drunk and cut his leg off with a saw. And, and that antiquated means of treating people. But back in the day, that was like, OK, that's kind of what was normal. Did. So I didn't know that I wasn't getting any help. I knew I was struggling. I couldn't verbalize it, I don't think. And more than everything, and I don't know if you hear this a lot, but the one emotion, the one driving force driving me into the ground was shame. Here I am. I'd worked undercover for uh, over a decade, you know, when I first started. Worked homicide. I was a canine handler for several years. I mean, I'd worked in some of the most high-speed places on the department. I valued myself as, you know, if somebody had a question, they're in a question I can't answer. The only thing I didn't do in, in the police department is traffic. And I just, because I can't mix motorcycles and buttons. I would, I would just kill myself on one of those things. But there was no help. Our peer support team back in the day, and they were asking me to be on it. They said, who's been involved in a shooting? And I raised my hand. And they're like, you're on the peer team. And I was like, uh, what? And I was like, I don't, I'm not in the right mindset to be talking to anybody. And I, I kind of knew that. And I remember like talking to somebody who'd been involved in a shooting shortly after mine. And I look back on it now and I cringe. Because I was giving horrible advice. I was, a lot of emotion was bleeding over into what I was saying to help him. And 
I'd re I, afterwards and I got my stuff straight. I, I actually went back and I, and I talked to him and, you know, I squared it, you know, but yeah, there was no, there was no help. There was no, we had an EAP that was an over the phone EAP. So I could call them and be like, hello. Their first question was, what's your area code and what's your zip code? I'm like, what difference does that make? Uh, well, we need to, and I hear them typing. They're Googling services for me. That was our EAP, which I thought was, and by the way, if they're talking to me, can they smell alcohol on my breath? They see if I'm disheveled, do I smell? Am I, have I just let myself just go? Or can I sit there and just BS them the whole way? Of course, right? And we know what to say. We know what to say. So the EAP, some person sitting in Chicago has no idea who I am. You know, the report back and be like, yeah, he's fine. He's okay. So with all that, I'm kind of stumbling through what eventually would help me. And I ran across, like I said, Mike. And so I sat down with him. And if you've been involved in a critical incident, you'll know the only thing anybody wants to talk to you about is the incident. I was so, I threw my phone out the window that night because it was blown up. Yo, I heard you in a shooting. Oh my God, it was great. You killed the dude. That's great. And I'm like, and I, eventually I just threw my phone out the window. And an interesting aside, my shooting took place April 15th, 2007. April 16th, 2007 was a Virginia Tech shooting. So you want to talk about like, you know, my wife, my girlfriend at the time, but I turned off the TVs because, you know, I just been involved in a shooting and here's this other man shooting on TV and didn't want to trigger me and, and do all this stuff. So everybody was asking, 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 you know, hey, what's up, killer? Or yeah, man, I, I wish I was there and all this good stuff. And I'm like, all oh, that tough talk. No, you don't. I wouldn't no. wish on my worst enemy. So I sit down with this guy, Mike, and for three hours, we talked about nothing related to the shooting. And it was the first time that I got this little reprieve from having to explain myself to everybody. And at the end of it, he, and prior to us meeting, I said, I said, Hey man, I'm Chris. And he goes, Hey, I'm Mike. I said, Oh, you know, what's your deal? You're in a shooting. He goes, yeah, I was in a shooting at a bank robbery where my partner was killed. Immediate rapport. Like me and him were like, this is a legit dude. What he says to me, as far as I'm concerned, is gospel. Isn't that crazy how our minds work? Because I same situation. I've shared this. As soon as I was in my shooting, they sent me to a guy in this white walled room. Trent, you know, the white coat. First question, hey, how are you doing? And like you, man, I was pissed off. This dude had never been punched in the face. See, this guy had never been in a fight in his life. And here he is going to give me counseling on a, on a traumatic event. And I'm not ready to talk about it. So that immediate rapport, that immediate connection is so paramount, man, if people are listening. Yeah. And you know, what's funny. And you mentioned that and you're going there to get help, but now you're more focused on so frustrated and so irked at the person who has no clue what you're going through. There's a little something that I deal with folks that really don't like clinicians and stuff. And I'll get into that a little bit, but so at the end of this uh, three hour, and it was almost like, it was like, it allowed my mind to take a break because I wasn't trying to be defensive in my answers. I wasn't trying to justify why I was in the shooting. I wasn't trying to explain, you know, he was here. I was here, all this stuff. I was appreciative of it and he could tell it was really, it was one of the first times since then that I actually like kind of relaxed and smiled a little bit. He goes, listen, Chris, I'm not a doctor. And I'm like, no shit. We're in a horrible restaurant. I'm not eating. You're Chick -fil -A. drinking. <laughs> it's like, oh my God, I hate it. So he goes, but listen, here's the deal, brother. He goes, if you don't get help right now, you're going to implode. You are going to lose it and you're going to destroy everything that you've worked so hard to get. And it's like that thing with reputation. If you're a cop, you understand this. Most people don't. You, you have a lifetime to build up your reputation, but it takes one, one. second to destroy it or even yeah. a fraction of a second. You know, your integrity 
is everything on the job and, and how you present yourself. So I kind of got in my own way a little bit with that, but because this guy said it made oh, sense. So I was having a conversation with somebody and in my shootings, I'd never been shot. And I was in shootings where other police officers were shot and hurt. And I always joked them. I'm like, well, I'm better because I didn't allow myself to get shot. So I was talking to somebody and somebody overheard me. And I, I said something pretty specific. I said, you know what? I wish I'd had just been shot. And at that time, it's a weird kind of double thing that was going on. Very suicidal. When I was diagnosed with PTSD and depression, my depression was depression with suicidal ideations. In other words, when I get depressed, my default is to think of suicide. And it's a weird, it's not by choice. It's just chemically, that's you know how I'm kind of built. I got to insert and ask you a question on this one. Did you feel like you were trying, like almost taking risk to, to put yourself through that on duty so you could be, you know what I'm saying? So you so, could be shot, could be killed. So we become a little reckless. Well, the value of life goes down. Let me make it clear. The value of other people's life does not go down. Yours does. So I got brought back to work what I thought was way too early. Now, in narcotics, where I was working, if we had a search warrant, they go over the, you know, the, the investigation and they do a lineup on the board. You know, all right, here's going through the door. Here's our RAM. Here's... So normally, when somebody comes back off of administrative duty, which I was... You're OP. Yeah, I'm outside. If somebody jumps out the window, push them back in or, or scoop them up. <laughs> they draw the shade up. And I joke because, I, you know, my supervisor at the time, I thought he hated me. I'm number one going through the door. And I said, hey, my man, I don't know. Last time I was at work, I killed somebody. And he's like, well, are you just going to suck that? Are you just going to linger in that? Or are you just going to do your job? So here's here, internally, this is what I want people to understand. My two greatest fears were overreacting and killing somebody that didn't need to be killed. And the other one, and they're, they're head and head, not reacting quick enough or hesitating and getting one of my guys or girls killed. That, I promise you, if I would have been involved in an incident and I hesitated and one of my friends got killed, I would have eaten my gun at the scene. But it's important. It's scary, but it's important to understand this is what I was going through. We were doing multiple search warrants at the same time. I go through the door. This 400-pound thing, it, there's dope and guns on the table, and they reach down as a glass table. And I was carrying at the time, it was a, an MP5K. It had the uh, foldable stock and come in through the door, immediately reach down underneath the table and starts coming up. And when they came up, I saw it was like a bedazzled phone. And I remember I made, the, I was like, that's not a gun and butt stroke them. And it was at that moment I knew that, A, I wasn't going to hesitate and I wasn't going to overreact. That is absolutely 100% not the way to find out. So again, that's starting to feed into, now I'm amping myself up. Now I'm doing shit or going in places and working undercover. I would go by myself, which is a huge no-no. I'd go yeah. into houses. I'd go, you know, all these different things. And and my supervisor was like, yeah. I mean, because they didn't care. They, didn't, they were like, yeah, at the time, just get Chris, go get some dope or whatever. And my partner was like, you know, take it easy, man. You don't always have to be running and gunning. So in the midst of all this frustration, I said, I, you know, I just wish I'd have been shot. And when you say that, you get whisked away to this wonderful place where they take shoelaces and they check your butt crack and you're not, you know, they kind of do you once over. And next thing you know, I'm sitting in front of a psychiatrist and they're like, I understand you want to kill yourself. And again, still in denial and still kind of trying to cover it up. I said, no. And the statement I made wasn't a suicide statement. And it's important. So they said, well, it said you wanted to be killed. I said, no, 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 no. I said, I wish I'd have been shot. He goes, that's kind of the same thing. I said, no, if I'd have been shot and wounded, I would have been able to see that wound heal. I can't see this heal. 
they and the doc was like, oh, okay. And he let me go. And like I think like a day later I attempted suicide. But you know, not that he was a bad doctor, but there's differences, right? You know, there's different shades. Uh, this thing kind of exists on a spectrum. So a lot of people didn't understand. They were like, so you, you do want to kill? It's not for what that I what I've done or how I handled anything. There is a I was involved in a motorcycle accident long, long time ago where I had road rash and everything. Anybody who knows about treating road rash, you scrape it, you clean it, you scrape it, you put a gauze on it, you peel it off, the skin comes off, gravel and all this. And it's probably one of the most painful things you can probably endure. And I remember telling somebody, I would rather have road rash on my entire body twice a week for the rest of my life than have to deal with the emotional pain, how significant the emotional pain is. What was it? Was it just the that you almost you tried to commit suicide the next day? So was it just you felt like nobody was hearing you? What what was going on in your head at that no, time? No, you know what's weird? I knew I could have reached out to my family. My stepdad's actually a psychologist, <laughs> interestingly enough. I felt that reaching out would be an indicator that I was too weak to do this on my own. So which is so I started going to like trying to hunt and pack to find where I could get help. And after that situation I wound up going to I was at the theatric facility where the right side is outpatient and the left side is inpatient you know there's doors sealed off and I remember sitting as far away from the left side of the the, the entrance as I could and I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm looking at all these people and in the waiting room and I was in another city and I was like what have I become and I'm like look at this guy over here I mean he's, he's talking to himself he's obviously that guy I mean what why am I here and I realized I'm talking to myself in the waiting room of a psychiatric facility. And I'm like, (laughs) what I'm doing. I need to be here. So I walk in and the psychiatrist goes, I take my jacket off. He goes, do me a favor, take your gun and your badge and put them in, in the trunk of your car. You walk into the building with your gun and badge. But I sit (laughs) into the room with just me and the psychiatrist and the doc. And he tells me, "Ah, I'm a little uncomfortable. You didn't put it in the trunk of the car. I said, you got it, buddy. And I drove away. Never went back to that place again. And it wasn't until a friend of mine who was involved in another significant incident within a shooting looked at me i was at a party at my house i was you know divorced i was living in a friend's room above his garage you know living the lifestyle of, a, of an amazing you know yeah. welded up right he looked at me he goes Dude, what is and i respected this guy and he goes what's wrong with you man i was like what are you talking about man we're having a good time partying he goes and i was faking it. i was totally faking having a good time and he's like i'm gonna tell you you look like you're horrible you're emaciated i looked physically ill and i took that to heart and i said i said well what did you do man like i was defeated he goes, this is the guy I saw. So I went to go see his doctor. I called him up and and his name is Dr. Dwayne. And I put his name out there because he's, he's phenomenal. I call him Dr. D and I get in there. And the first thing he says to me, he goes, listen, I am not a cop. I've never been a cop. I'm not a fireman. I'm not a medic. I don't know anything about what that is to put that on. But I have treated hundreds of first responders. And it was one of those things where he wasn't sitting there saying, <laughs> I, I have school. I am better than you. He said, I don't know what you do, but I treated a lot of you. And with that, it was really nice and kind of going through the thing and the differences that I found in that. And again, it, it was never one thing. It wasn't the doctor. It wasn't my friends. It was the friends, the doctors. I went out to the West Coast post-trauma retreat, did work out there with Dr. Uh, Joel Fay and Ellen Kirschman. She wrote the book, I Love a Cop, I Love a Fireman, was out there with some you know, pretty amazing folks, started working, doing peer work here in Virginia. And then started kind of doing it around the country. And it wasn't until I got my feet underneath me and a really good friend of mine who was struggling with substance issues was on the verge of getting fired or arrested. And 
I remember getting him to a facility and then he funny every time he called me from a facility, it was only three numbers that came up. And by the way, if you're in a facility, those cords are like four inches long. So you're like hugged up to the phone and he's like, Hey buddy, what's going on? I'm like, Hey man, how you doing? And I was able to help him. And I say that I was a, a one small part in helping him. He helped himself. And uh, I brought him on as my substance abuse guys to, to work with people on, on the department. And, and I was the trauma guy. My trauma led to just the abuse of everything. It, it wasn't just substance issues. It was high risk, like you were talking about. I was taking unnecessary risks. The value of myself very much dropped where I still wanted the value of everybody else was, was getting higher and higher. And it wasn't until I started working on that, doing some EMDR, getting some, you know, really good therapy. And inevitably, I needed medication initially. There was, there was no getting around yeah. it. But getting the right medication to put me in a place where I could be treated was what I needed. So, Chris, how, how long did it take you to, to get your substance abuse? And how did you get them all under control, brother? It, it took a long, you know, I talked to my buddy. He was in recovery seven times. There, a lot of mine is my connection to substance issues was very tightly interwoven with trauma. I'm one of those, like we are, you know, when we do this kind of work, when I first, when I worked as a medic, you know, I didn't want to get, you know, difficulty breathing, you know, on a five-story walk up, you know, where I have to carry somebody who weighs 900 pounds. That's not my idea of trauma. I want gunshots. I want stabbings. When I became a cop, I didn't care if you walked into Target and stole $3,000 worth of Dale Hart Jr. underwear. That to me wasn't exciting. To me, excitement wasn't stopping and giving somebody 47 tickets because the tread on their tire was bent. I wanted to work undercover. My job took me to Central America, working the MS-13 uh, task force, violent crime task force with the FBI, worked undercover for all sorts of different agencies, Secret Service, with ATI, I mean, you name it. So for me, the thrill was in that. And I'm not taking anything away from anybody who does the other stuff. It's just, that's it just my wasn't, thing. wasn't your jam. I get it. And my hat's off. I got a buddy of mine who I graduated the academy with, who's like a renowned motorcycle cop because he does those rodeos. You got to have those guys, though. Oh, my God. He can do stuff on a motorcycle that I can't do in a car and four wheels. But, you know, those guys generate some revenue from the police. You know, one of their tickets for, like, the motor carrier unit is like $50,000 or like two hundred. I'm like, listen, you guys do your thing. And I it was funny because I, I talked to a – and this is all about how we perceive, you know, trauma and stuff. I was talking with a trooper who I'm really good friends with, and I told him, I said, I could never do your job. And he's like, what are you talking about? I said, I stopped one car on the interstate once, stopped him, a tractor trailer drove by me, shook me to my core, walked back to my car and drove away. I'm out. Uh, yeah. No, I'm not doing that. Because by the way, I can't talk myself out of getting hit by a side mirror. And he goes, I can't do your job. I was like, what are you talking about? Going into a stranger's house and buying guns or drugs? I said, I'm in control of that situation. I can't control this million ton thing rolling down the street. And he, it's again, I will never you know, put down anybody that does that work. That is much needed yeah. work. It's what we do. So my next goal was how do I convince my department? That was the major thing. Now, in most agencies, and I don't know if this will resonate with anybody, but most agencies aren't running full power, right? There's always a shortage of manpower or personnel, right? So I asked my chiefs, I said, give me an opportunity to sell you this. I want to start a permanent unit in our agency. And they're like, what do you mean a permanent unit? I mean a standalone unit. I was a hostage negotiator. I was a training sergeant for the hostage negotiation team. Those were separate duties. You did your work, and if a hostage situation came out, you did that. You were attached to a team. Exactly. Or you yep. were running or, or for whatever reason. We had Prior to that, uh, we had our SWAT team was assigned to our narcotics because they were constantly doing search warrants. And so when we were kicking indoors, you were basically out of narcotics. 
So they separated a few years prior to that, well, a couple years prior to that, right? So they all looked at me, they're like, all right, go ahead and convince us. At the time, I wasn't a PowerPoint guy, but I was going to school. I, you know, work on my master's and all this. And I said, okay, um, we spend a significant amount of our budget on our bomb squad unit. And I'm not taking anything away for those guys are phenomenal, but hundreds of thousands of dollars for the truck, for the Johnny five robots, for the school out in Arizona. It never seemed to work. By the way, a folding chair will screw up a robot from going into a place. And so also I'm telling, I was like, so we spent all this money, blah, blah, blah. In the last 20 years, how many bombs have we had? Now, mind you, I'm in Norfolk, Virginia. We have the world's largest military installation. So we've got Navy EOD. We've got state police, state EOD. We have Virginia Beach EOD. We've got more EOD trucks than we do patrol cars, right? So in the last 20 years, we had two incidents. We blew up somebody's book bag that left it outside the mall, which got amazing press. That was hilarious. We just, some guy left his book bag and we're like, bomb, and just started blowing it up with the robots. And the other one was we found a fake pipe bomb. And they're like, so what's your point? I said, in the last 20 years, how many suicides have we had? And at the time, it was 11. And it is very hard to justify throwing millions of dollars into what, and again, not taking it away from the bomb squad. They're great folks. I even was online to, to, to run the squad. But what are we doing for the folks that we have in service? I, like my friends, the suicide. One was a murder suicide. You know, so what are we doing for that? Oh, well, shut them down. They're like, here's $10,000, Chris, start the unit. I paid for two speakers, $5,000 a piece to come out. I said, hey, I need more money. <laughs> I need more money. Can you help me out kind of deal? And just kind of ran with it. And then as I got closer to retirement, I did my transition. I had awesome guy, Rich, Sergeant Creamer, who's out there now. Now we've got service dogs that are going to roll call. We're going to dispatch. I mean, they're, and John, who's my substance abuse guy, is now being, getting his license and, you know, and to, to help be a clinician to treat, you know, substance abuse as a cop and all this good stuff. And so my shift moved more towards a national stage and working with ICP and ICISF and all these other agencies. I mean, I was in awe. Uh, I spoke with the American Association of Forensic Sciences dealing with our forensics folks that maybe aren't sworn all the time, having to redact videos of police shootings. They're getting traumatized and they're technically they're not sworn. So the American Association of Forensic Science asked us to do a presentation. I did it with Dr. Farrell and Tim Anger, who's a uh, a neuropsychologist. And so I have two doctors on the panel and me, you know, just some messed up cop, you know, who's got stories. And one of the, the ministers of their department of forensics in, in Panama uh, came up to us and said, Hey, I would like to invite you to come speak at our international conference. And so I stepped back. I'm like, they obviously want the neuropsychologist and the other doctor to talk. And of course they kind of like, Oh, sure. We'd be happy to. And he's like, not you guys, him. And I'm like, me, <laughs> I'm like, I got to go to Panama city, Panama, to speak in, and, and I'm I'm Colombian, so I speak Spanish, and that was the other. They wanted a Hispanic. The presentation was in Spanish, so it wasn't it wasn't like the two white people could do it, right? And then I start getting picked up with International Association of Chiefs of Police, uh, Department of Justice, all these great places, and it got me to see all over the place. And I started slowly realizing what I thought was just my little niche over here is people need it. It's global. I mean, yeah. I into somebody. I worked with a guy from Manchester who responded to the Ariana Grande bombing concert in, in London or in, in the UK, we, me and him wanted to do a presentation in Boston. It's the same all over the place. What I, the survival mindset was to provide training. And then I was like, I want to do more than train. I want to connect with people. And when you speak at these places, these conferences, like I'm, I'm going to, to a narcotics 
conference next week in Minnesota and, you know, go out to like LA or go all these different spots, you know, Oklahoma and all this thing. The greatest thing is not the presentation. The presentation is whatever you bells and whistles. So it's connections, brother. When you come off that stage and you have somebody coming up to you, now I get into it. I talk about how the medication affects you sexually, how it affects you. And no one talks about that stuff, no. right? Yeah. And because they're embarrassed. And I said, I'm no more embarrassed about what I went through than if I had cancer, you know, like it's one of these things that it's not what's wrong with you. It's, it's what's happened to you. And so I was in Vegas and, and this kind of leads into, you came on our show, which was, you know, unfortunately I was deployed to DC to help with, you know, the Capitol police, but I appreciate you coming on. I knew Raul and Chris were like, dude, this guy's amazing. He's doing great work. I'm like, Oh, that's awesome. And I'm, I'm stuck. Well, I'm not stuck. I enjoy, you know, helping these guys out. So I'm in Vegas and I'm, I'm doing my, my spiel and I show my shooting, I have video and audio of the shooting. And as I'm sitting there, when the video plays, I've seen it a thousand times, heard it a thousand it, uh, There's The emotional connection is not as tight as it was. So I really, I, what I did was I moved off to the side of the stage out of the view so people could focus on, you know, the media. This guy comes running around the corner, comes up to me. He's like, you okay, brother? I'm like, yeah. I was like, yeah. I said, are you okay? The guy's name is Doug Mondo. So Doug, who runs Survive First, was watching it, came over to me. I was like, no, 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 dude. I was, I'm fine. I've just moved out of the way. Two things happened that day. Doug and I became probably the best friends ever. The other thing is, it was finally, I saw somebody with as much compassion for, he didn't know me. Right, right. He saw all the stuff and he's like, oh man, this guy's going to be hurting watching this, shoot this guy, all this stuff again. And he came over, the compassion and the immediate, you know, he'd been involved in a lot of stuff. He tried to kill himself. It was one of these weird things that you just, sometimes you get lucky and you meet, I'm just the best of people. And then through Doug, I wound up meeting Raul, who was, uh, I think you had him on the show too. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and Chris Fields, who, I, we call him Chris the Tiger King because he's from Oklahoma, but who was at the Oklahoma City bombing. I was a responder to the first and to the second Trade Center bombing. And I've worked with people from Sandy Hook, from, and again, a good friend of ours, Patty, who just passed away from COVID. Uh, me and him met at a treatment retreat. It was not like that. So it's weird where, where you meet the folks that you meet. And we kind of sat down. We're like, what can we do? You know, we've got this powerhouse of really great people. And so we started this trauma behind the badge. And we responded to Baton Rouge after they had multiple suicides and officer shootings. We responded to Texas. Uh, they're doing the honor memorial where or the memor- the walk memorial bridge for uh, memorial for first responders and veterans who completed suicide. And the firefighter that they initially commissioned to be in the mural or in the statue, for some reason, couldn't do it. So now Chris Fields, I don't know if you talked about this, Chris Fields is going to be, his likeness is going to be on the memorial for the suicide prevention kind of thing out in in Texas. And, you know, went to Florida. We we started doing all these different things. And, you know, we don't get paid a lot. And we really, some most of the time we're donating our time. Uh, We'd like we did in, you know, in in Baton Rouge. I donated my time when... We went to, you know, uh, Doug and Raul went up there first. I spent a couple of weeks up in, in D.C. for the Capitol Police. But we don't we never did this for money. If you're a cop and you're doing it for money, you're an idiot, because I don't know what to, unless you're working at Beverly Hills Cop. I don't know what they make, but I know we didn't do this for money. I did it for the camaraderie. I did it for to be able to walk side by side with somebody to protect the people on the right and left of me uh, and the people behind me against against the evil you know, people and stuff. Yeah, that man. Said. It becomes a little bit selfish, but anytime I help somebody, whether get them into recovery or or help them with the mental health issues that they're experiencing or they're struggling, because I work with folks with traumatic brain veterans with traumatic brain injuries, and 
and dealing with all this good stuff. And I have a traumatic brain injury from the military. So we are wounded, but we're not out of the fight. And there's no one more powerful than somebody who's been to these dark places and come out successfully than to help these other folks. I'll leave you with this because I, I know I know we're running short on time. There's a thing that we used to say at a post-critical incident seminar. It's a retreat that we do a couple times a year. Unfortunately, COVID kind of wiped that out a little bit, but we're picking it up again. And there's this police officer in this dark, dark hole falls in. And this pastor walks by, the priest walks by and the officer's like, Hey man, can you help me out? The pastor says, you know, I'll pray for you, but I can't help you out. This doctor walks by and he goes, Hey doc, can you help me out? I'm stuck in this hole. And the doc says, I can write your prescription, throw his prescription down in the hole. And this other cop walks by and he goes, Hey man, can you help? And before he finishes, the cop jumps in the hole with him. And the guy's looking at him like, well, you're an idiot. Now we're both stuck in this hole. And the cop said, yeah, but I've been here before. It's that. And we need champions for this cause. There is no hole deep or dark enough that we can't help each other get out of. And if anybody tells you this is easy, it's not. But like one of the greatest quotes I ever heard, and it's from a league of their own, Tom Hanks said it. And she's like, I just can't do it anymore. It's got too hard. And he said something so profound. He goes, it's the hard what makes it great. And if it were easy to kind of get out. And the other thing I tell people is if I could do this for you, I would, but it's not anything I can do. I can be there for you and support you and be your cheerleader. But ultimately you have to make those steps. You have to do what you need to do to get to a place where you're healthy. You versus you. If you fall, guess what? It's not over. The only failure in this, and and whether it be recovery or, or mental health issue, the only failure is not getting back up. That's it. If you need help, I will lend my hand down there. I will call on all my brothers to come help you out and sisters. And come on, let's go. And I'll help you back up. But when you go across that finish line, that's you on your own. And there's no counter moment that you can have of somebody who struggled with so many demons to actually kind of be like, you know what? There's an internal pride that you can't pay for. Money can't buy that. It's a powerful, powerful thing. And it's contagious. And that's, and that's what I like it. And by the way, I read the web, your like website, the chase the base challenge. I started reading it like a motivational speak. I don't know how you wrote (laughs) anything like that, but I was like, Oh yeah, you're going to do. Yeah. And I was getting all pumped. I was like, Oh man, this this is pretty awesome. Yeah, man. Well, that's our invitation, right? To keep chasing the vase. The vase is grabbing sobriety, securing your mental health, finding the next best thing, giving yourself out. You know, that's what it's about. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Chris, thank you, man, for your time. Thank you for giving us your heart. Thank you for giving us all your time. I mean, energy, dude. I appreciate what you're doing. Thank you for having me, man. It's a blast. And you keep on doing what you're doing, brother. You're nothing but good things. And again, I appreciate you coming on ours. And anytime you want to come back, we'd love to have you, man. And Sam, I'm going to call you back. We need to take a dive now. We need to dive yeah. into this, some of these things. Awesome, brother. If you know me. Hey, thank you for your time, Chris. Thanks, brother. You've been listening to Chase the Vase Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Anchor, or Apple Podcasts to get new, fresh weekly episodes. For more information, please follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook, or visit our website, chasethevase.com. Until next time, keep chasing the vase.